All right, good evening, everybody. Glad you made it through the rain uh, for another session of Proverbs. I'm always amazed the second week of class that people actually return, so I'm glad that you came back and uh, looking forward to our time together tonight. Uh, last week, the hour went really fast for me. I don't know if it did for you, but it did for me, and I enjoyed working through the material, and I'm looking forward to tonight as well. Uh, I want to begin by looking at a passage of scripture, then I'll open in prayer, and this will set the frame for our discussion of Proverbs tonight, and this is in Job 28, uh, not in Proverbs, but Job 28, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. It's this elegant and eloquent poem about where does wisdom come from, the source of wisdom, and it uses this analogy of a mine where you go down into the ground and you bring out precious metals, and the end of the chapter Uh, ends this way in verse 20 where then does wisdom come from where does understanding dwell it is hidden from the eyes of every living living thing concealed even from the birds of the air destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears god understands the way to it and he alone knows where it dwells for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. He said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. So tonight we're going to discuss where does wisdom come from? Uh, What is the source of wisdom and how did wisdom shape the book of Proverbs as we have it today. Uh, So that will be what we're working on as we go through uh, the uh, part two of the introduction. Uh, So I'm looking forward to that time together. So let's open a prayer and then I'll, I'll begin. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to study your word tonight. And I pray that you give us wisdom and insight and skill as we seek to navigate the book of Proverbs. I pray that this will be a helpful discussion as we uh, begin to understand more about uh, how the book came to be and how in your wisdom and providence uh, you've inscripturated this revelation for us and I pray that you'd help us as we seek to apply it to our everyday lives. We see examples each day on the internet or uh, during the news of people who are not living out biblical wisdom. So I pray that you'd help us to do what is right and to learn the true source of wisdom and to be able to apply it in a profitable way in our lives. Thank you for uh, this fellowship of believers. I pray that you'd give them strength and bless them tonight as a result of our study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Does everybody have a a notebook or something to follow? Okay. There should be a box over there. Uh, So if you happen to forget yours or need an extra copy, avail yourself of that. All right, well, last week uh, we set up some our discussion with a few initial questions, and I think we ended on page 18, so we'll be picking up from there and going forward, and I'm going to try tonight to get through as much of the introduction as I can, and then, uh, Lord willing, be getting into the book of Proverbs and spending as much time there as we can. I want to, though, uh, as I did last week, frame our discussion tonight on the basis of four questions that I think uh, will be helpful to us. The first is this, where did wisdom originate? I put it wisdom here in quotation marks. What I mean by this is when we talk about wisdom or the wisdom literature of the Bible, how did this come to be? Uh, Did the ancient Israelites just sit down and sort of come up with a book? Or was there a tradition that led 
to the wisdom that we have? And if so, how can that help us understand what's going on? Okay, then I want to look at who wrote Proverbs. Okay, we'll talk about Solomon as a potential author and those who say that they don't think Solomon is the author. Uh, We'll talk about how is Proverbs arranged. Okay, so what I mean by that is, uh, is there a conscious and deliberate arrangement of the Proverbs in the book? Or are they simply randomly put together? Uh, Let me show you an example of this. For instance, let's go to Proverbs 14. I'm sorry, Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15. And if we look at verses 8 and 9, uh, if, if we're going through the book and uh, trying to read... By the way, did anybody make an effort to read some of Proverbs this week? Anybody? You? Okay, good. good. We'll keep at it. I'll keep encouraging you each week to do that. If you look at Proverbs 15... Uh, the way that I normally read Proverbs as a young man and up into my adulthood, uh, at times in my life I would try to read a chapter that corresponds to the day of the month. I've heard of Christian leaders doing this, right? So you read chapter 1 on the first day of the month and so on. Uh, but I would often read these chapters as simply unrelated, pithy sayings that might give me some wisdom about life, but not really seeing any connection. But notice how when you read more carefully, sometimes a connection does seem to emerge. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. Verse 9 says, The Lord detests the way of the wicked, but he loves those who pursue righteousness. All right, now notice how verse 8 begins and how verse 9 begins. The Lord detests, verse 9, the Lord detests. Now, is this just a coincidence? Is this just a random, arbitrary Arrangement, or is it perhaps that these two Proverbs were intentionally put together and that they sort of bounce off one another to give us a meaning as to what's going on? Could it be that verse 8 is talking about the worship of the wicked and verse 9 is clarifying that the worship of the wicked is really indicative of his entire life? That is to say, the Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked And he detests the way of the wicked. So, in other words, it seems that the sacrifice of the wicked is parallel to the way of the wicked. In other words, your religion is really how your life is characterized, the way that you pursue. And then the second part of the verse, the prayer of the upright pleases him, is paralleled. And he loves those who pursue righteousness. So, in other words, the the upright man who's praying is the one who is pursuing righteousness. So there's some symmetry here. And I want to suggest that there are many proverbs like this in the book and that if we're reading carefully, we'll begin to see some of these connections. So when I talk about how is proverbs arranged, we want to look at the macro level and then on the individual level uh, to see that as well. And then the last question, uh, if we have time to get to it tonight, uh, how should proverbs be applied How should Proverbs be applied? All right, so that's an outline of the questions. Let me pause before I dive in and just ask this. Were there any questions from last week that maybe I didn't get a chance to answer or thoughts that you had this as you were thinking and reflecting over the past week? 
any questions anybody had? No, I feel like you're tracking with me okay? Nobody fell off the boat? Okay, good. I have to ask that every time I teach Hebrew because I get this glazed look and I never <laughs> quite know if they're really with me or not. So, Okay, well, on ver- uh, page 18, uh, I have a section here that's entitled The Sources and Development of the Wisdom Movement in Israel. And what I want to do is just highlight a couple things that I think are significant in helping us understand where wisdom originated or where it came from. There's a debate that is raging uh, among scholars of Proverbs over what sort of a context that Proverbs emerged from. In other words, uh, there are some who say uh, the book of Proverbs is simply the result of royal scribes who were working for the king and they had a need. They had a bureaucratic need to train young men to be the successors in the administration of the kingdom, right? So we have to train young men, and we know uh, if you're in a business where you're hiring young people, you know that often they come with a lot of inexperience, and it takes time to train them and to get them up to speed so that they have some sort of skill. And so some would say this was a problem in ancient Israel, and so they had uh, a need, and they filled this with the book of Proverbs. It was a manual to educate and train young men for administrative work. So that's what some said. And in fact, they say it was completely secular. It was just a pragmatic book and later became a religious book. Others say, no, you know, that's probably not what happened. It really started uh, in a grassroots sort of way in the families and among the, the, the folk of rural areas. And so they just kind of had their colloquial wisdom and that was later codified and made into the book of Proverbs. Now, this may seem like, well, what bearing does that have on us as we look at the the book of Proverbs? Well, let me just point out a few things. You'll notice, of course, that when the book of Proverbs begins, it says that these are the Proverbs of Solomon, king, son of David, king of Israel. And I think I mentioned this last time, but if you look at chapter 25 and verse 1, we have another major heading for the book. And here it says... These are more Proverbs of Solomon copied by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So these headings would suggest that the book comes from a royal context, right? That these are scribes of Solomon or Hezekiah. And so the question becomes, uh, is that the reason that it came to be or not? So I have a few pages here that kind of outline that debate as it's going on uh, between folk wisdom versus royal wisdom. And I want to... uh, go to page 21 and argue for what I think is probably a better answer, and that is it's neither one nor the other. It's sort of a synthesis of both. Uh, Number one, I don't think that it's legitimate to say that in ancient Israel they would have had a secular wisdom book that later became religious, uh, because that's not how the ancient people thought about life. Everyone was very religious in the ancient world. There really was no such thing as an atheist per se. That's a modern development following the Enlightenment. Uh, you know, there were philosophical arguments uh, that would question these things, but uh, generally speaking, they were very religious in the ancient Near East. And so to say something is secular just seems to really contravene how they would have thought about life. Now, on the other hand, we can't completely either say that It was entirely folk wisdom because the traces that we have in the book suggest a royal context. So how do we put these together? Well, if you turn actually to page 22, uh, page 22, 
uh, I want to suggest a couple things. Number one, uh, wisdom seemed to start first and foremost within the family structure, and this is with the parents training their children. Remember, uh, most of the opening poems to the book of Proverbs begin this way. If we look at Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 8, it begins, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. This is the first poem within the book. And immediately the son is confronted not with the king, but with the father and the mother. And it begins at a very elementary level. And so I would suggest that wisdom really starts within the family structure. That's where wisdom is first inculcated in the child, in the young person. And from there, develops beyond that. The next ring, if if you can think of this in terms of concentric circles, right? So we begin with the family structure. The next circle out was really the elders of the village okay we're not necessarily taking a a slogan that it takes a village but we are saying in the village there were a group of elders that were very key and instrumental in disseminating wisdom if you've read much of the old testament you know that from time to time you encounter stories where the village elders become a significant character in the book you can think of uh, ruth for instance Uh, there are other examples of this and this seems to begin with uh, the 70 elders that were anointed with the Spirit. If we turn back to the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 11, you remember Moses had a problem. He was trying to adjudicate all the disputes of the people. And you remember how uh, his father-in-law gave him some advice that you can't do this. And so the Lord provided something for Moses to take some of that that workload off of him and some of that responsibility. And here in Numbers 11, verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to me at the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. So these elders are filled with the spirit and given wisdom. And so they function in a capacity as wise leaders who can adjudicate disputes among the people. And so they're really, I think, the cultural bridge between the family and the administrative capacity in the kingdom. So the elders of the village had a very important role. And I note several examples here. For instance, uh, number in Deuteronomy 25, if there was a dispute over levirate marriage, in other words, there was a widow who was not taken by her late husband's brother, as was stipulated in the law. She was to go in front of the elders, and they would address the situation, and they were supposed to be wise and able to make a good decision. In Ruth chapter 4, uh, Boaz confirms the marriage to Ruth where? In front of the village elders. And he calls his friend and says, come sit here and uh, listen to this dispute. Uh, we see other examples of this on page 23. I know a few other things. Absalom, uh, he would stand among the elders. And when he was trying to draw the hearts of the people away from David, so he was using this in a negative capacity. He was sitting with the elders. And when people would come into town, he would say, You know, you really have a a serious issue. It's too bad that the king hasn't appointed someone who can help you. If I were king, I would do that. And so he, little by little, the Bible says, stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Job 29, Job says that he used to have splendor. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew the aged rose and stood. 
Okay, so the the elders were the ones that were wise. And eventually it would seem that some of these prominent elders became uh, advisors in an official capacity to the king. It seems initially, at least, that the king would take in some of these these wise elders and put them in an official capacity. If you can think of a few examples, uh, Ahithophel, remember Ahithophel, he was one of uh, the advisors to King David who defected to Absalom. And then there was Hushai, and so David sent Hushai to be uh, a subterfuge against Absalom to try to overthrow the, the wisdom of Ahithophel. You remember the story, and what does Ahithophel do when he sees that his wisdom is not followed? Do you remember what he does? Kills himself. Okay, he's one of only probably three characters in the Bible that commits suicide, which is a very serious thing. So they, these elders were taken in. So this seems to be how it began, because with David, he's the one who begins to really develop this administrative system. If you read through First and Second Chronicles, uh, he's setting up the singers and the administrators and all these sorts of things. And so eventually, there came to be royal scribes. If we look at an example of this, Second Samuel, in Second Samuel chapter 20, uh, we see something an example of these royal officials. Uh, it names these significant individuals. Joab was over Israel's army. Benaiah, son of Je- Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites. Adoniram was in charge of forced labor. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, Ahilud was recorder. Sheva was secretary, and so on. And so by this point, they begin to have an administrative function. So within the royal court of Solomon, there was a need to keep records, to give counsel, to uh, administrate the kingdom and the labor system. And so because of this, it would seem the wisdom movement began, but it was always tied closely to uh, this royal grass, this folk wisdom, grassroots wisdom of the people. So there seems to be a nexus between the two. All right, we know we read last week, I think, First Kings 4, where it talks about Solomon having wisdom that was uh, greater than all the wisdom of the sons of the east, that his understanding was like the breadth of the seashore. And so Solomon probably heard uh, a lot of the wisdom of the people and he codified it in the book. Okay, so. When we say where did wisdom originate, we mean where did the wisdom movement originate? And we would say probably it begins with the family and then it moves outward to the extended family structure. And this is codified in in the biblical text in terms of the village elders. And remember, in these little towns in Israel, probably a lot of people were related. Okay, If If you come from a large family, you can probably relate to this. But remember that the tribes were given parcels of land for their tribe and so really that was all extended family so there was an intimate connection there so wisdom was uh, embodied in these elders and then eventually it became more and more sophisticated as the king took over and so by the time we get to the book of proverbs it's wisdom that's been distilled from the family all the way up to the royal court and solomon is under divine inspiration uh, putting these to paper and then arranging them, and the men of Hezekiah later fulfill that role and complete the book, uh, as we'll see. All right, questions about that? Does that make sense? So we're saying wisdom kind of begins and grows organically that way. All right, so let's. I, yep. Yeah, I do have a question. Sure. I, now, I'm sorry, I missed last week, so I mean, you might have touched on this, but 
Uh, you're talking, when you talk about the origination of wisdom, you're talking about the, the human plain MO. You're not talking about the ultimate, because ultimately right. wisdom originated in the eternity past. Psalm 119.89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Right. Okay, so all of this originated in the eternity past with God, ultimately, but right. you're talking about the human plane. Right, I'm, I'm talking about how the apparatus that gave rise to wisdom tradition, such as we see in Proverbs, came to be. But Job 28, what I read at the beginning, you're right. On, on one level, this is an easy answer, it originates with God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if it's the beginning, it's the starting point, true wisdom comes from God, right? The book of James tells us this, that it's wisdom from above. Uh, so, yes, God is the source of wisdom. Uh, so ultimately, it has a divine origin. But in terms of the wisdom tradition, uh, as, as godly families inculcate their children, and that extends out, uh, I'm looking at how the wisdom tradition uh, came to be. Because last week, we spent a little bit of time looking at Egyptian wisdom literature and Mesopotamian wisdom literature. So they had their, their own traditions, but in God's providence, he brought Solomon to be. He endowed him with wisdom. Uh, Solomon asks for wisdom at Gibeon in his dream experience, and so the Lord uh, gives him wisdom. And so ultimately, God is the source, and I'm just looking at from how the tradition came to be. Okay. Good question. Okay, so uh, if we have that in mind, let's go to page 24 if you're already there. And I want to look at a, a few things related to introduction to the book. I'm going to talk about its title, authorship date, its growth as a book, and so on. And some of the literary features. Okay, the title of the book in Hebrew is The Proverbs of Solomon. In the Greek version, it's the Proverbs of Solomon. So how did we get our title, the Book of Proverbs? Our title comes from the Latin Vulgate. If you're familiar with how that originated, uh, Jerome translates that uh, early in church history in the late 4th century. And so uh, Jerome named it in the Vulgate, the Book of Proverbs, and that's where we get uh, our title for it. Uh, one interesting thing about Proverbs is in the Hebrew Bible, there's a slightly different order and arrangement to the books. And one of the fascinating connections is uh, when we look at our book of Proverbs, right, it follows Psalms. Now, why do you think Proverbs follows Psalms in our Bibles? Because it's the Son of David. Okay, exactly. I think... That's right on. So we have Psalms, and the book of Psalms is usually connected most with which historical figure? David. David, right? He's the sweet psalmist of Israel. Then we have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, who are associated with Solomon, and these are wisdom writings. However, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, right after Proverbs is the book of Ruth. Why this is interesting, and I point this out, is uh, we have one literary connection that joins these two together. Remember Proverbs, how it ends, right? Every Everyone is probably familiar with this passage, Proverbs 31. We talk about Proverbs 31 women. Uh, I just saw a title of a blog post the other day, you know, how does a Proverbs 31 woman use Facebook? You know, things like that. So we're familiar with that concept. Uh, but verse 10 of chapter 31 begins this way, a wife of noble character. 
that's a Hebrew phrase meaning uh, really a wife of virtue or a wife of uh, exceptional character and strength. That phrase is only used twice in the Hebrew Bible, once here and again in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth immediately follows Proverbs, and Ruth is called a woman of noble character or a woman of virtue in Ruth 3.11. So it seems that from the Hebrew perspective, Ruth logically followed Proverbs because Ruth was an example of what a Proverbs 31 type woman, if we could say it that way, was seen to be. Now, the other thing that's interesting, and I won't get into this too much, but uh, Ruth is an interesting mixture because... She was also an outsider, right? She was a Moabitess. And so much of Proverbs is warning against being seduced by the outside woman who will draw you away. Ruth seems to be the answer to this because she's the outside woman who actually God uses to perpetuate the line of Messiah through David. And so she brings together uh, these various facets by being... A, an outside woman who becomes the wife of noble character. And so she's an example of someone who displays godly wisdom. Okay, so that's the title of the book. Uh, I'm going to skip the uh, text issue here because I don't think that really necessarily will help us for the purposes of this study, uh, but you can read through that if you're interested. Uh, it talks a little bit about the Hebrew text versus the Greek text. Uh, but I'm not going to dwell on that very much. So let's go instead to page 26, and we want to begin to talk about authorship and composition. All right, so we've mentioned this a little bit. Remember last week we began by saying, uh, who is Solomon? Is, is Solomon qualified to be the author of the book? Uh now we want to address this in terms of if we say that Solomon is the author of the book, uh, what does that really mean? So let me ask this question. When you imagine Solomon penning the book of Proverbs, uh, do you imagine that it's probably something that he just sat down and sort of just penned, put pen to paper and began to write Proverbs? Or what do you imagine this process might have been like? Providentially speaking. Any thoughts? Might have journaled it. Who said that? Journaled it? Okay, right. So as you think about his experiences, um, I was, for my junior year of college, I spent a year down in South America and I had to learn Spanish. And uh, I had had some high school Spanish, but it's nothing like being thrown and thrust into that culture, right? And so uh, we had an assignment. We had to go out on the streets and talk to 50 people a day. And we had this little speech that we would give them. So I would always carry around a notebook because I would hear every day some unusual phrase. And I would write it down so I could remember it and commit it to my mind so that I could use it and try to impress somebody, you know, the next time I was speaking Spanish. So maybe Solomon is, you know, as he's hearing things, writing it down. Okay, any other thoughts? Okay, collecting it. We know that, uh, for instance, Solomon had some significant visitors that came during his reign, right? He had the queen of Sheba 
come up, and you remember the account there that she was left breathless by her experience of Solomon's wisdom. So Solomon seems to have been conversant with other sages and other wisdom traditions. Uh, there is, I think, a trace here that he was at least familiar with the Egyptian wisdom writing of Amenemope. So if that's the case, uh, he probably heard things from foreign courtier, courtiers who would come to his administration as well. Any other thoughts? So th- these are good ideas, right, that maybe he's doing it this way. All right, well, we would usually say that that's probably what happened, that as he uh, hears things and is thinking of things, he's writing them down. Now, the issue, though, is when we are looking at a scriptural book, there's a bit of a different emphasis that we need to put on this, right? Because we take the book of Proverbs to be divinely inspired, the inerrant word of God. So we know that everything Solomon includes here is inspired by God. So how how can Solomon take maybe a proverb that he hears and how does then divine inspiration touch upon that proverb? Have you ever thought about this? So if if Solomon's hearing the wisdom, how does divine inspiration enter in? Would we say that the book of Proverbs is less inspired than other books of the Bible? No. Right, we wouldn't say that. So, is it a is it a different sort of process? Any thoughts? Well, I think God gave him wisdom. That was one of the gifts He had given him mm-hmm. right at the beginning. So, his wisdom was a blessing from God as compared to other people. Okay, he was given that distinct blessing of wisdom from God. Right. So, he had an ability to hear wisdom and immediately hone that through the lens of divine revelation in such a way that vouchsafe the truth uh, as God would have it to be. Okay, do you have a thought about that too? Um, Yeah, similar. Um, All truth is God's truth, no matter where it's spoken, whose mouth it comes out of. So he, you know, having the discernment that God gave him, he was able, as you said, to to filter it through what he already had and recognize it when he saw it. Right, right. So we would say uh, there is common grace so that, you know, even those who are apart from Christ can have wisdom to a degree. Uh, but even beyond that, uh, we would say that this book is is specially inspired by God and inerrant as other scriptural books are. And so uh, Solomon may be interacting with the wisdom of the world, but everything he's writing is exactly what God intended in his divine providence and inspiration and so it's without error and it is wise and so it's not only divinely inspired and originating from God but it's practical and can be applied by everyday people uh, so that's the symmetry and beauty of the book could it be like experiential too like because he's he's not maybe experiencing it but he's hearing it from other people or basically like phenomena logical too, like how he sees the world and how he's able to step back and view it from a different perspective. Right, so he's he's doing it experientially, is that the word that you used? Yeah. Right, so he's seeing and observing things, and uh, I take Solomon to be the author of Ecclesiastes as well, and so in Ecclesiastes, remember chapter 2, he talks about how he experimented with wisdom and how he observed all these things, and he's also... Uh, seeing things in the world, I, I think also of, often of the time where uh, the two 
women come to him and he threatens to divide the baby in half and that's an, ex- an expression of his wisdom and how he God gives him that wisdom and so uh, he's able to experientially express that. Uh, someone has said it this way that uh, the way the world approaches wisdom is to live and learn. The way the Bible tells us to gain wisdom is to learn and live. You see the distinction there. In other words, we have the benefit of Proverbs telling us, don't do this. Because if you throw your life away down this direction, uh, you're going to be in for a lot of pain and hardship and heartache. Learn first and then live uh, rather than the other way around. Yes? Um, referring back to your question, are you are you asking for thoughts on how the Proverbs themselves were organized in the writing process? Some of that, too. Yeah, if you have a thought along those lines. Well, I, I, having gone through it in the past, it was my understanding that um, the whole book of Proverbs was done in a poetry, poetic fashion, um, specifically Hebrew poetry, which is nothing like what we know poetry to be. So in order to really appreciate it, um, it, it has to be approached as and explained as Hebrew poetry. Right. So it's a little complicated. Yes. Why it was organized the way it was, but in the Hebrew language, it's it makes sense. Right. Uh, for the most part, yes. Uh, it, I'll say this, that uh, understanding poetry is essential, understanding Hebrew poetry is essential to interpreting Proverbs because we have that poetic parallelism. So when we think of poetry in English, we usually think of meter, rhyme, and vivid imagery, metaphors, things of this nature. In Hebrew poetry, you don't have rhyme, and although it's not certain why that is. Some have suggested it would have seemed seemed too simplistic to the Hebrew writer because so many words have similar sounds. What you often do have are acrostics, for instance, or you have the, the, the gold mine of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. And we'll talk a lot about that too because if you can understand how parallelism works, that'll open up a whole new world in terms of reading Hebrew poetry. So we want to talk about what that means and how one line uh, echoes the previous line and and gives us a greater understanding of the meaning. So we'll talk about that. All right, good. So these are good thoughts. Let me talk uh, a little bit about some of the traditional views. I want to touch on a few things, and then I'll give you some reasons why I think seeing Solomon as the author of the book is the best approach. Uh, On page 27, I note the traditional views of the authorship of Proverbs. For instance, the Jewish tradition uh, says that Hezekiah and his company wrote the Proverbs. Now, probably what that means is they arranged the book as we presently have it. And we know that, as I read earlier from chapter 25, verse 1, that the men of Hezekiah copied out these Proverbs. Now, how much later from Solomon was Hezekiah? If you know your your biblical history fairly well, does anybody recall the the time span between them? Okay, so Solomon's around 970 B.C. Hezekiah is around the fall of the northern kingdom. 
722 BC, so it's about a 250-year gap. So if we're looking at that, we know that there probably was a preliminary form of the book that later was supplemented by Hezekiah's men who were taking some of the additional material and shaping the book as we have it today. So this is a book that has probably uh, a growth over centuries, and that adds an interesting twist. Now, when the Jewish tradition says Hezekiah and his company wrote the Proverbs, this probably means that they're the ones that put it together. And this would be suggested by chapter 25. I myself take it that I think Hezekiah and his men probably put the finishing touches on Proverbs, although I don't know who Agur and Lemuel are from chapters 30 and 31. My hypothesis would be these are other kings that the men of Hezekiah are incorporating into the book. So I would put the book around the end of the uh, 8th century or so. Uh, Others, though, uh, Christian church fathers saw Solomon as the author of the book, but uh, around the 19th century, critical scholarship began to draw away from this particular view. Now, we don't have time to get into this. I teach this in a lot of other courses, but it's a fascinating topic to look at how the Enlightenment led to what we call higher criticism of the Bible. And this began with the Pentateuch, right? That was the first set of books that critics began to try to undermine in terms of the credibility. Did Moses really write the book of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, and so on? Well, after the Pentateuch was shredded by higher critics, they turned their sights to other books of the Bible. Uh, I go to these academic conferences from time to time, and I once heard a paper where someone was proposing that Obadiah had five different authors. I thought if they can do that to Obadiah, nothing's left uh, that they can't turn their scissors to. So there are a lot of higher critics who say that Solomon Solomon didn't write it, that the book was very late. I'm not going to get into all these details. Uh, You can look that over uh, and see. I want to, though, go to page 29 and talk about uh, what I think are some more recent and pertinent scholars, probably the best evangelical scholar who says he doesn't think Solomon wrote the book is a man named Tremper Longman. Uh, He teaches out at a uh, seminary in Santa Barbara, California, and he's written a a commentary on Proverbs, and he gives several reasons why he thinks Solomon did not write the book. I'm just going to kind of refer to these so that you can at least hear the other side before I give you what I think is the reason why Solomon is the author. He says, number one, several of the headings point to others, authors other than Solomon. Okay, well, we would concede, yes, that is the case. Number two, pithy sayings like the ones we encounter in Proverbs typically emerge in a verbal context rather than a written context. So how can we say someone wrote the Proverbs? Okay, so you see Longman's argument. He says, usually Proverbs are used in a spoken context rather than a written context, so why would we say that Solomon wrote out the book of Proverbs? Well, how would we answer that? Well, somebody wrote the book of Proverbs, right? We have a written out book, so whether or not the proverb originated in a spoken context, someone committed it to writing, so who was that? He says he doesn't think it was Solomon. Number three, he says that uh, if you compare Proverbs to other works in the ancient Near East, it makes it difficult to say Solomon wrote this. All right. Well, again, I would say 
we have wisdom writings from the ancient Near East. We looked at this last week, Mesopotamia and Egypt, that predate Solomon by centuries. So it's not difficult to see Solomon as the author. And then lastly, Longman says, well, Solomon didn't write Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon either, so he probably didn't write Proverbs. Okay, well, that's sort of a weak argument because you're, you're begging the question, technically. You're, you're saying, well, if he didn't write these, then he also didn't write Proverbs. Well, what if he did write those? Does that mean he did write Proverbs? And so I would see that argument as being able to go either way. And so that's why uh, when it comes to Longman, I... I sometimes hesitate to recommend his commentaries because of uh, some of these issues. And in fact, I note there at the bottom of the page, uh, number two, at the last sentence on 29, it may be true that proverbial wisdom often generates in an oral context, but scripture states elsewhere that Solomon composed 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. So Solomon was known as a writer of wisdom, and so it would make sense for him to be writing this wisdom book as well. All right, so those are the arguments against it. Let me just give you a few arguments for it, and then we'll move into how we uh, read and apply these. All right, uh, two sources that I think are the most helpful in advocating Solomon's authorship of the book. One is Bruce Waltke. He's written the definitive commentary on Proverbs. Uh, if, if you're really interested in, in a good, substantial work. It's a two-volume set. And he says Solomon probably wrote the book for several reasons. Number one, Solomon is the wise sage wherever you turn in the Bible in the Old Testament. For instance, uh, we note here 1 Kings 4, God gives Solomon wisdom that's greater than any of the other kings. Okay. Uh, number two, there are similarities in structure and content between wisdom literature in these other countries and the book of Proverbs. And then there's linguistic evidence that suggests a very early date. Okay, this is all page 30, turning to 31. Uh, if it's the product of a royal court that's consistent with how prop, how wisdom literature was written in other contexts, so it's, it, we, it's to be expected that Solomon and his royal court would be writing this. Okay, and then lastly he says, uh, there's been no good arguments marshaled to disprove Solomon wrote it and if all traditions suggest that Solomon did we should give the benefit of the doubt to the tradition before we cast aside Solomonic authorship all right so those are uh, some of those arguments for I, I note there Kenneth Kitchen he also has some arguments based on the words and the structure of the book so those both also seem to affirm that all right let's turn to page 32 and I just want to note uh why I think that when you take Solomonic authorship at face value, I think this helps to unlock some of the uh, parts and sections of the book. Uh, within the book, as I've studied the structure, I've come to the conclusion that there's a lot of symmetry in how the book is arranged. Bless you. If you look at page 32, I note here that there appear to be seven sections within the book of Proverbs. Now, uh, numbers are almost always significant in the Bible, right? And the number seven usually connotes certain things. Can anybody think of what the number seven often connotes in the Bible? Completion, Completion right? So uh, seven can be an, an important number in that sense. Uh, I taught through the book of James uh, last year, 
and there's just some really interesting features in there connecting wisdom and uh, James has seven uh, descriptors to describe wisdom in the book and keeps connecting it back to this idea of completion, maturity, and fullness. And it seems within the book of Proverbs that we have seven sections which mirrors this idea of completion or fullness. Uh, And in fact, I would even push this a little further and say this, that I think uh, each section gets successively more complex until you get to the end of the book. So in other words, the point is to start with the milk, if you will, of the early poems that warn against things that particularly young people might be gravitating toward or tempted by, and then it gets increasingly complex as you get into uh, the two-part Proverbs, and then ultimately you get to the riddles. And uh, Lord willing, I'm going to be teaching a, a session in a pastor's conference in October in which I argue that the structure of the book lends itself to an understanding of progressive sanctification. In other words, you start simple and become increasingly more mature and able to handle more complicated and complex material until you get to the end. And I'm going to suggest that the uh, prologue here, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, set up this increasing complexity. So I won't get into all those details at this point, but I'll just say this, that the structure seems to suggest that. All right, so if that's the case, let's just briefly touch on how this works. I think there are seven sections. The first section begins chapter 1 and verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. We have a prologue here where he gives us the purpose for the book. Look at verse 2 there. And I don't know what version you have. I'm reading from the NIV, but it follows to say for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding, for acquiring, for giving, so on and so forth. And then we come to verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is the uh, programmatic statement of the book. This is the theme of the book. So that's an introduction. And then we immediately begin these wisdom poems. Listen, my son. Okay, this goes through the first nine chapters. Then if we go to chapter 10, let's just quickly look at these. In chapter 10, we enter the second section, and we have another title, the Proverbs of Solomon. Okay, now what distinguishes chapter 10 from the previous nine chapters? Why does Solomon give us another title? Don't we already have a title in chapter 1, verse 1? Chapter 1 is setting up the introduction to the book and the initial poems that that begin immediately. And what's that first poem about? It's about, don't follow young men of violence. The very first warning is against associating with peers that will drag you down a path toward violence. How much that message is needed in our society today. That's the first lesson. And I would argue that once the young student begins to master the material in chapters 1 to 9, the complexity ratchets up a notch in chapter 10, verse 1, with Proverbs. Now, why are these more complex? Because a poem, you can read through and learn the lesson, the point that's being made, and it's fairly simple and straightforward. But when we come to the Proverbs, there's often a nugget that needs to be mined out. In other words, there's there's something there that's maybe just beyond the surface that the wise initiate needs to probe a little deeper to understand. So, for instance, Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son grief to his mother. 
So this is something that invites you to contemplate and think, okay, how is a wise son compared with a foolish son? How does a wise son bring joy? How does a foolish son bring grief? And as we work through each proverb, in and of itself, each proverb invites us to think more carefully and deeply about what's being said. Okay, so that's chapter 10 through 22.16. Then when we come to 22.17, we turn there. Now, this often just gets uh, really passed over quickly, but uh, probably many of your Bible versions have a heading above verse 17. My NIV Bible does. I don't know if yours does. It says something like the sayings of the wise. And verse 17 says this, pay attention and listen to the sayings of the wise. Now, this might, as I said, get passed over, but I think many have correctly noted that what this seems to be is another heading in which Solomon is bringing in wisdom from outside. So in other words, he's now applying things that he's heard from wise men under now the pen of divine inspiration. And he's saying, pay attention and listen to the sayings of the wise. So this section is uh, the wisdom from those whom he has heard. And this continues to chapter 24, verse 22. And then if you look at chapter 24, verse 23, there's another heading. These also are sayings of the wise. So again, we have another section this one is briefer, and it's wisdom from outside. Uh, is he connecting it to a menomope? It's possible he's connecting it to wisdom he's heard uh, from other contexts, of course, under divine inspiration. Then we have chapter 25, verse 1. These are more proverbs copied by the men of Hezekiah. And so we have a section where they're copying, and this goes through the end of chapter 29. Then we go to chapter 30. Chapter 30 begins, the sayings of Agur, son of Jaka. Now, who is this individual? I don't know. Uh, But as I read the book, what I notice about chapter 30 is that it has the most in common, on the one hand, with the book of Job. And Job is complex wisdom in a certain regard because it's, it's wisdom that's dealing with how do we affirm wisdom in the midst of Uh, what seems to be an upended man of integrity who's grappling with how can I reconcile the goodness of God with what's happened happened to me as an innocent, wise man. What I see here is Agur is saying things which are very similar to that. Uh, You know, he talks about uh, not being able to ascend. Uh, In verse 4, who has gone up to heaven and come down, who has gathered the wind in the hollow of his hands, who has wrapped the waters in his cloak. These seem to be echoes of the book of Job. And then he has a number of riddles or things that are somewhat difficult to really understand the connection. Uh, Now, why this is significant, let me just refer back. And remember I said Proverbs 1, 1 to 7 is the introduction to the book. In verse 6, it gives us a paradigm. It says that this book is for understanding proverbs and parallels. Okay, these are the intermediate complexity of wisdom. And then lastly, the sayings and riddles of the wise. Now, what are riddles? I don't know if any of you like to do brain games or riddles. 
There's something that is a little more difficult to tease out. And I would suggest that that's exactly what Agur is doing. So, for instance, uh, you know, he talks about uh, two, three or four things that he can't understand. For instance, in, in verse uh, 15, there are three things that are never satisfied, four that never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, land which is never satisfied with water, and fire which never says enough. Now, as I read that, the invitation there is, what connection do all these things have? And why does he describe it this way? So this is what I would call a riddle that is inviting us to think deeply about this. Okay, remember when Samson gives a feast and he offers a riddle. This was a common device in the ancient world to test the mental acuity of those around a person. And so they would be tested through riddles. So I want to suggest by chapter 30, we're into the complicated, difficult riddle type wisdom. And then chapter 31, we have Lemuel, who gives us an account of how a king should rule and gives us a sketch of the type of wife he ought to be looking for in chapter 31. Okay, so this, if we take this to be the case, as I note at the bottom of page 32, uh, these headings suggest that there are seven sections of Proverbs that is a collection of collections of wisdom material. Okay, so I don't know if you've ever heard the book explained this way, but I would say Proverbs is a collection of seven sections of wisdom that increase in complexity toward the end of the book. And so read that way, it helps us to see that it, it's a, a book that has movement and a book that has a dynamic to it. It's not just a randomly put together account. Okay, so if you look at page 33, I have this in a chart here. These are the, the seven sections of the book the beginning, the Proverbs of Solomon, the words of the wise in two sections, the Proverbs of Solomon, the words of Agur, and the words of Lemuel. Okay, so I would take that to be how the book is set up and structured. Questions about that? Does that make, make sense, more or less? Okay. All right, so with that in mind, let me just touch on as we conclude here, we just have a few minutes left, the growth, composition, and structure of the Proverbs. Okay, so it begins here with these first nine chapters that are sort of the initial entree into wisdom. Okay, if we turn back to chapter one, we see, for instance, that these poems uh, begin in verse eight of chapter one. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Okay, if we go to chapter two, my son, if you accept my words and store up my commands. Chapter 3, my son, do not forget my teaching. So you notice here a repetition, right, that these poems each begin with an address from the father to the son. And so as scholars have studied this, uh, they've noticed that there are 10 speeches. Okay, again, the number 10 is significant, perhaps an echo of the Decalogue, but there are 10 speeches that the young man is to master. And interspersed within the speeches, we have something else. Okay, if you've noticed uh, as you're reading through Proverbs, you'll have these wisdom speeches, and then interspersed, you have these initial calls from Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. So as the young man, man is mastering the material in these ten opening wisdom speeches, he's also getting uh, invitations from Lady Wisdom, 
and Lady Folly to pursue the variant paths. Remember, I sketched this on the board last week that Proverbs is about two paths, following the path of wisdom or following the path of folly. So beginning in chapter 1 and verse 20, Lady Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. We'll talk a little bit about this when we get to this section because uh, it's unique for uh, a lady such as this to be calling out in the streets. Uh, so we'll talk about what this means, but she's she's very courageous in confronting the young man to make sure he's not drawn in by uh, Lady Folly. All right, so they have these 10 speeches, and I, I just want to note some things about these. Uh, at the bottom of 33, a few things that are significant. They're all addressed to my son, and they all command the son to hear, receive, or not forget They all assert the personal authority of the speaker, the value of the father's words, and they appeal to the father as the ultimate authority. If you look at page 34, uh, there's a a man named Glenn Pemberton who's written a study of these, and he notes that there were really three types of speeches in these ten speeches. And this is kind of interesting. There are calls to attention. Okay, so... In other words, if you're beginning to train particularly young men, but we'll think of of young people in general, and you want to get them to learn the path of wisdom, what do you do? You call them to attention, you give them something to think about and obey, right? Very rote at the beginning. And then you warn them against the seductive pseudo-wisdom of the outsider. And in this case, it's the alien or the strange woman. So there are calls to attention and these emphasize, th- emphasize things like hearing, listening, being attentive. There are calls to remember and obey. These emphasize not forgetting, not being lost. And then there are warnings. And these use words like treasure, guard, and keep. That is, to maintain vigilance when it comes to protecting your integrity. And so if you look at how these are divided, if you look at the bottom of 34... This is a structural analysis of these speeches. So speech one and speech two are calls to attention. That The son is to listen. Listen up. Pay attention. Three and four are calls to remember. So each section begins first by getting the attention of the young man and then giving him something to mull over and think about to carefully process in his mind, to remember this. Right? This is a good way of, of teaching Children getting their attention and then giving them something to remember. Then he began speech five with two more calls to attention and five and six and then a call to remember. And then he ends eight, nine and ten with these warnings against the outside woman. And again, I would suggest that this is a a cumulative or a progressive warning. So the the warnings of the outsider come a little bit after the calls to attention and the calls to remember. And, you know, I think even when we're teaching our children, this sort of follows the process that we begin very simply in teaching them certain things. And then eventually we introduce the fact that now we have to be a little careful when we're out and, you know, when you're talking to strangers or whatever it might be, you have to be careful and, and have your guard up a little bit because not everybody wants to uh, do good things. There, you know, there are people in the world that, that aren't nice. And so we begin to uh, inculcate these sorts of concepts and these speeches seem to follow that pattern. And the young man in eight, nine and 10 is warned against the seduction 
that is going to be offered by the outside woman that will uh, tempt him away from the path that is uh, right and where he is supposed to stay. All right, so these are the the ten speeches that seem to uh, uh, begin the book, and I just wanted to introduce those. Our time is up, though. Do we have any questions on anything we covered tonight? Just one. Um, and, and I get so much of it all mixed up. When Hezekiah's time came, didn't they lose track of uh, what was written? And they found it in a cave or something, and, you know, they went and read it to the king, or the king wanted it read to all the people. Yeah, was that was... that a different... That was Josiah. Okay. And that was two generations after Hezekiah. So... I'll answer this shortly, but and when you look at Israel's history, you have the divided kingdom, right? Israel, Judah, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Israel never has a good king. Judah has seven quasi-good kings, but really only two that are seemingly mostly beyond fault, Hezekiah and Josiah. In Josiah's day, there's a revival of sorts because Hilkiah and his cadre find this document in the temple... They bring it to Josiah, he rips his garments in repentance, and he's perhaps the most zealous king of all. He hunts down the false prophets, and he's very zealous. In God's providence, he dies young in a battle against the Egyptians. That's one of those strange providences that I sometimes think about because I'm an OT guy and I get paid to think about questions on the Old Testament. Why did Josiah die so young? He was doing so much good. And yet, he dies young in battle in a foolish venture. I don't know. But in God's providence, judgment was coming, and he was the last glimmer of light before judgment ensued and engulfed the people of Judah. Uh, So, Josiah was generations after Hezekiah. The, The sacred writings were kept in the temple complex really from the beginning, either tabernacle or temple. That's where the sacred writings were kept. So, The temple had fallen into disrepair, and this is why when they come in, they discover these sacred books, and they haven't been following them, and Josiah realizes, we're not doing this at all, we're in trouble. Uh, And so that leads to a recovery and and a revival. Whenever we see revivals in the Old Testament, it's always connected to a rediscovery of the power of God's word. Ezra and Nehemiah's day, there's a revival because they're reading the law. Hezekiah's day... Josiah's day. It's always accompanied with renewed worship, renewed focus on the word, and those come together in a time of revival. But unfortunately, it doesn't happen very often. So, all right. Good question. Anything else? Kept you a little late. Sorry about that. All right. Thank you for your good attention. We'll see you, Lord willing, next week, and we'll press on.